It's Tuesday, December 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The medical field is still experiencing a shortage of nurses, and as COVID persists, some are leaving staff jobs to become travel nurses, and in some cases, tripling their salaries. As shortages occur in hospitals, the demand is rising for travel nurses, and it can be very lucrative for those that can be flexible enough to move around for weeks and months at a time. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how travel nursing is taking off even more. Next, lingering concerns about the pandemic and inflation is making Americans hoard cash. Over the past two years, Americans have saved close to $1.6 trillion in money they would not have otherwise saved. COVID relief and stimulus payments have helped many in saving the excess money. Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the Super Savers. Finally, a new survey is shedding light on how some Latino voters feel about the term Latinx, and it could be problematic for those using the term to reach out to the community. Only 2% say they refer to themselves as Latinx, and worse yet, about 40% of them say they are bothered or offended by the term. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for the big question. How effective is this language when communicating with Latino voters? It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. During the first year of the pandemic, this really took off. There was 35% growth in the travel nurse market in 2020, and now they're expecting another 40% on top of that. Joining us now is Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. Well, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about an interesting story you wrote about nurses, travel nurses more specifically. You know, we saw a lot of staff shortages. We saw what was going on with COVID. There's a lot of nurses being burnt out, a lot of nurses retiring. It's an aging workforce. And there was already, you know, to to help with some of these shortages around the country, nurses were traveling to nearby hospitals, far away hospitals. Obviously, they get a pay bump for that travel. In some cases, they're tripling their salaries as these travelers. And uh, we're expected to see those numbers rise this coming year. So, uh, Lenny, tell us a little bit more about it. Well, yeah, you've hit the high points right there. Um, this During the first year of the pandemic, this really took off. There was 35% growth in the travel nurse market in 2020, and now they're expecting another 40% on top of that in 2021. So you're talking about a, maybe 140,000 travel nurse vacancies in, in this country. Now, that's that's a small fraction of the 2.6 million nurses who work in hospitals around the country, but it's a very critical faction because wherever you have a spot shortage, these nurses are racing in to fill the void, and we're having more and more of those voids, and we're having uh, more and more nurses, as you said, burn out because of the pandemic. And so this is becoming an ever larger phenomenon to the point where uh, we've got 40,000 vacancies in the travel nurse market. You can you can basically get it, get this job if you have the right certifications. You can get one this afternoon. And um, you you also uh, have uh, the continued pandemic. So no one really knows where it's going to end. One of the other interesting sides of this, though, because it sounds pretty good, right? If you're a nurse and you have the opportunity, you can go travel. You can make more money. You can help out people in other parts of the country. But it also highlights kind of the pay disparity. You know, people that are working at uh, their their hometown hospital, however it is, you know, they're making whatever their salary is. These travel nurses come in, do the same jobs, and they're making triple that amount. 
So you will hear stories, and I wasn't able to track any particular anecdote down and, and prove it, but as I was doing my reporting, you will hear stories about a travel nurse working side by side with a staff nurse, the staff nurse, for whatever reason, family, uh, home, um, age, didn't want to leave, you know, is there making her regular salary, which in America is 74000 a year on average, and the travel nurse is in there for 13 weeks doing exactly the same duties, making three times that amount. Well, I think most of the time you are uh, nurses are just trying to get the job done and they're grateful for the assistance because nurses work very, very hard. Um, But, yeah, you've got people with great differential in pay working next to each other doing the same job. And in fact, the staff nurse has all the experience, but is making the lower salary. For the story, you profiled a man named Alex Stowe. He's 25 years old. And uh, he's been doing this for a little bit of time. Tell us a little bit about him and his experience with this. So really nice guy, uh, 25 years old. He was working in a hospital um, down in Lansing, Michigan. Um, He had been in the ICU for a few years, so he knew he had those skills, uh, which are highly in demand with the number of people who end up in intensive care with, with COVID. And he signed up to be a travel nurse. Well, they didn't move him all that far. They just moved him up uh, to northern Michigan. So they tripled his salary from roughly 35 uh, bucks an hour to 95 bucks an hour. And uh, he was actually still close enough that um, on his days off, he could go down to his previous hospital and work a, a day shift as a, as a freelancer or a contractor. Um, and so Alex was really putting away the money um, to the point now where he's going to get a truck and he's going to pull a camper and he's going to take contracts farther away and already have his place to live. And he'll work for 13 weeks. He'll bank, bank basically three times what he's used to, take some time off to see the country, uh, then take another contract. And until this situation that we are in resolves itself, he will be able to do that. The average uh, age of a nurse is 50, and for ICU nurses, it's even older. We saw what happened with the great resignation, right? A lot of people just burnt out and wanting to leave the workforce. A lot of nurses left. It makes the demand for the travel nurses that much more prominent, but just the overall shortage of nurses is a big problem. And Nursing shortages have been a characteristic of the U.S. healthcare system for a while now. They were really worried um, back 10, 15 years ago, and there was a big push, and they added a lot of staff nurses. Um, And that was good because we really were facing a a big shortage of nurses. Well, those nurses, as you mentioned, are getting older. RCU nurses are even older than that. COVID has meant that we can't bring in the usual number of foreign nurses that we use every year here in the country to to fill the gap. Uh, There aren't enough nurses coming out of nursing schools, not because people don't want to be nurses, but because there aren't that many faculty in nursing schools. And so they're not churning out enough nurses to move into the workforce as the other ones retire. And then you have the situation with If you're a 57 or 58-year-old nurse, you're sort of towards the end of your career. You're looking at COVID. You're already burned out from doing that for a year, year and a half. Early retirement looks really attractive. And uh, if you can afford it, you're moving on into that that, uh, area. So 
there's just a number of things going on right now that are all contributing to this acute shortage of nurses, this acute short-term shortage of nurses. And law of supply and demand, when you've got an acute shortage, somebody is going to pay to fill that gap. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. We've seen the savings rate drop a little bit in the last year, but there was a there was a high during the pandemic that really enabled people to put this money away. That plus the stimulus checks created this this huge boon in excess savings. Joining us now is Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Well, Americans uh, have been turned into super savers right now. They're hoarding cash. There's uh, a lot of concerns about the pandemic, obviously, all the ups and downs that we've been through have uh, made people be a little more cautious about what they're doing with their money. Uh, so, Julia, what are we seeing with all this? Yeah, it's definitely a, a huge number, $1.6 trillion in excess savings. I will say that that excess savings term uh, doesn't mean in excess of what is necessary or needed. It means savings they otherwise wouldn't have been able to bank were it not for the pandemic. So totally to your point, you know, savings that they maybe weren't saving intentionally, but or money they were putting away intentionally, but money that they were unable to spend due to stay-at-home orders or due to quarantining, so money that they were unable to spend that then became savings. But we've seen the savings rate drop a little bit in the last year, but there was a there was a high during the pandemic that really enabled people to put this money away. That plus the stimulus checks created this this huge boon in excess savings. So how does this figure into the conversation when we talk about inflation? Advisors usually get a little antsy when you talk about having a lot of cash on hand like this, having more than is recommended, you know, more than that three to six months emergency savings that you want to have liquid in case of catastrophe. They get antsy about it because in an inflationary environment, sitting on cash doesn't really help you. You're losing value you're uh, in this in this inflationary environment where prices are higher, so your savings aren't going to go as far. Uh, but we're also seeing that people are still spending, you know, going into the holiday season. We normally expect that the fourth quarter is typically a time when people put more money on credit cards, spend more money on travel and gifts for their family. But we're definitely seeing spending not curtailed as a result of inflation. People are sort of seeing these higher prices, but thinking, OK, I, I won't change my patterns as a result. Credit cards is an interesting thing because more people are applying for credit cards. They're using them for, I guess, smaller items and all that, maybe not so many big ticket items. But we've seen a a resurgence of people applying for credit cards. Definitely more people applying for credit cards, also more people putting money on credit cards. You know, credit card balances are still below 2019 levels, so we haven't yet gotten back to those pre-pandemic levels. But people have put more than $800 billion on credit cards in the third quarter of 2021. So that's a huge increase, also an increase that followed the second quarter. So this is normally, you know, the time of year, like I said, when we would be seeing this. But that plus the applications for new credit cards, squaring that with the huge savings is definitely a bit of a head scratcher for some people. You know, and and this is all uh, kind of important, obviously. You know, in, in most times when there's recessions going on, people start saving you know, just out of fear of how things might affect them. Right now, the, the labor market is pretty tight right now. There's a lot of uh, people getting raises in income and, and people are still saving this cash, you know, to the point of the pandemic being so uncertain. Obviously, we have 
Omicron going around right now. We don't really know how that's going to affect us so much, but it's causing people to be afraid to dip into these savings. They want to keep these cash savings on hand just in case. Yeah, the folks I talked to said that it's a lot of uh, fear factor and uncertainty. So people who think every time that something starts to get better, it doesn't or it even gets worse. So anytime that somebody thinks, okay, now I'm vaccinated, now my friends are vaccinated, now my family's vaccinated, you know, the world's opening up again, then we see a variant. People think, okay, you know, 2022, this is going to be my year. Then we see this Omicron variant. So definitely when I was speaking with advisors and other people, they made a point that people are scared. People are scared and they're not sure what's going to happen in the new year. What do these advisors say as far as what to do with some of this excess money? Yeah, I spoke with one advisor who pointed out there's a lot of upsides to, to having that cash on hand. You know, she speaks with clients who say that it gives them flexibility. It gives them peace of mind. They, they like knowing that should something happen, they could access that money very easily without, without, any, um, without any downside. But the disadvantage is that then you're missing out on some of these market gains. So she has mentioned that she talks to clients about taking some of that money, keeping it liquid, sort of keeping it as your piece of my money, taking the rest and, and investing it. Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Only 2% use Latinx. Uh, 68% prefer to be called Hispanic. 21% prefer to be called Latino or Latina. But also what was interesting is 40% said that the term bothered them to such, to such a degree. Joining us now is Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back again. I want to talk about an interesting thing, something that I've been curious about uh, for a long time. Um, we're seeing the Democratic messaging fall a little flat when they uh, try to court Latino voters, Hispanic voters, and they use the term Latinx. Just an interesting look at, at this term that uh, seems to have gained more traction very recently. Right. And there's an irony in Democrats using a term Latinx to reach out to Hispanic, Hispanic voters, Latinos, Latinas. Because Democrats say, hey, we're going to run what they say, a culturally competent campaign to reach out to Hispanic people, meaning they're, they're essentially going to kind of speak up to someone's language and to their culture. And then they use an alien word that really is just that construction is not found anywhere, as you know, in Spanish, like even in Spanish, like you, you would call that Latinx or something like what is that? <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and, you know, more so the poll is interesting because, yeah, only two percent use Latinx. Uh, 68% prefer to be called Hispanic. 21% prefer to be called Latino or Latina. But also what was interesting is 40% said that the term bothered them to such, to such a degree. And 30% said that they would become less likely to support a politician or an organization that uses the phrase. And the poll that was done of 800 Hispanic voters nationwide or Hispanic or Latino voters. We're not going to say Latinx voters because no one says it, right? The poll by Ben Dixon and Amandi International, they're based in Miami. Uh, they had advised Barack Obama on his Hispanic outreach campaigns as presidential races. They had kind of determined, like, look, we, we probably shouldn't use this. As Fernando Amandi, the pollster, said, is, you know, this sort of violates the political Hippocratic oath, which is to first do no electoral harm. Why are we using a term 
that could offend as many as, as 40% of our voters. It doesn't really make sense. Now, Amadi also points out, sure, Donald Trump made gains and Republicans made gains among Hispanic voters from 2018 on, both in Florida, in the Virginia in 2018, and in 2020, nationwide in President Trump's uh, re-election bid, which he lost. Uh, and in Virginia, in the, the statewide races there, governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. But he said, sure, Latinx is not going to cost us in and of itself Latino voters, but it's part of this kind of greater narrative where Republicans are able to use that as part of an opening with Hispanic voters to say, look, you know, these 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 folks, these Democrats over here are are not uh, kind of speaking to your language. They're not speaking to your culture. And it just gives Republicans an opening that they otherwise wouldn't have. You make mention in the article, too, about um, Univision and Telemundo, two huge players in the Spanish language media, obviously big players in the United States as well. And they don't use it, right? They refer to their audience as the Latino audience as well, because, uh, you know, to your point earlier, right, it's not found in Spanish. uh, Spanish. It's not an actual word that uh, refers to the community. So you got to look there. And and then you look to the generational split, too, right? Um, So maybe... Younger people might identify that way. The more on the activist set probably identify that way. Correct. One of the founders of Univision had said that when they put together the network, and it used to be called the Spanish Information Network, SIN. I must admit, I don't know what it actually stands for. But, you know, way back when, they actually faced at the time, the predecessor of Univision, this discussion that they would hear in New York and in Texas and California and then later in Florida. Well, like, are we going after the Cuban market or are we going after the Mexican market or are we going after the Colombian market? And like, no, no, their point way back when the the seventies and eighties was Spanish speaking is part of its own culture that unites Spanish speaking Cubans, Mexicans or people of Cuban and Mexican descent, Argentinian and the like. And they began using the word Hispanic for that reason, because it kind of refers to the language. And this is a case where, where, where language in and of itself uh, dictates culture. It, it conveys culture. And a, as a result, when you have people using language that doesn't fit with the culture, it, it kind of can backfire or at least is not very effective. And, and you know, there are those people, while you're not offended, who want to keep their language as it is. And, you know, yeah, fine. You know, a, a vowel, or better said, a word ends in A, and therefore it's generally feminine, and then a word ends in O, and therefore it's generally masculine. But it's not as if people speaking Spanish, as they're saying the words, uh, you know, are being knowingly sexist or gendered or whatever. It's just kind of how the language evolves. Right. But a, lot of, a, a number of folks kind of get offended at the idea, like, I've got to say Latinx, because if I say Latina or I say Latino, I'm being sexist or gendered, and therefore I'm on the defensive. It, it brings up all of these issues that pollsters like Fernando Mani are like, look, like this is not the fight to have because it's a right. fight we don't win. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.